Welcome to the PRI Review, brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Mannion. Puerto Rico Governor Vetoes Common Sense Restrictions on Abortions While most states in the United States have at least some restrictions on abortion, in Puerto Rico, legal restrictions on abortion are practically non-existent. A pro-life bill passed by the Puerto Rico Legislative Assembly last month would have helped change that. Although the pro-life bill passed both houses of the Commonwealth Legislature with overwhelming majorities, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosselló has vowed to veto it. The bill, entitled The Law for the Protection of Women and the Preservation of Life, PS 950, would have introduced a number of common-sense restrictions on abortion in the U.S. Commonwealth. They include requiring parental consent for minors under 18 years of age, seeking abortion, and requiring that infants born alive after an abortion are provided with appropriate medical care. PS 950 also required doctors to provide women with informed consent and required abortion facilities to meet minimal health and safety standards. On March 7th, the Senate passed PS 950 with a two-thirds majority. The Puerto Rico lower house, the Chamber of Deputies, also passed the bill on Thursday with a final vote tally of 30 to 10. The bill's sponsor, Honorable Naida Vegas-Brown, is from the governor's own party, the New Progressive Party. At a press briefing on Monday, Governor Rosselló indicated that he would veto the bill, arguing that PS 950 would impose onerous restrictions on women. Rosselló further argued that requiring parental consent for minors seeking abortion would limit the legal options available to teens. Governor Rosselló, while not a member of the Democrat Party, is a member of the Democrat Governors Association. The names of Puerto Rican parties are different than those on the continental United States. The governor's rejection of the bill comes after Democrats in Congress last month blocked a federal bill which similarly would have guaranteed abortion survivors with medical care and legal protection. Pro-life lawmakers are seeking to override Governor Rosselló's veto. In Puerto Rico, overriding a veto requires a two-thirds majority in both the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate. We believe we would have what it takes in the House, says Daisy Quiles from Mujeres 950, a pro-life organization that has been advocating the passage of 950. Quiles says that they hope to secure enough votes in the Senate as well. And pro-life lawmakers in the Senate may indeed be able to muster the votes for a veto override. When the Senate voted on PS 950 earlier this month, the bill passed with a veto-proof majority. It remains to be seen, however, whether senators who voted for the bill the first time around will be willing to vote for the bill again over the governor's veto. PS 950 would introduce a number of basic abortion restrictions already enforced in many states across the U.S. The bill would require doctors to obtain in-person written consent from a parent or legal guardian before performing an abortion on a minor under 18 years of age. 
According to the Guttmacher Institute, a pro-abortion research organization, 26 states currently have laws requiring parental consent for a minor's abortion. An additional 11 states require that at least one parent be notified of a minor's decision to have an abortion. The bill also establishes other safeguards for minors, including a provision that would prevent a parent, a legal guardian, or a boyfriend from forcing a minor to undergo an abortion against her will. PS 950 would protect infants born alive after an abortion by guaranteeing them protection as persons under the law. The bill would require medical staff to provide abortion survivors with the necessary medical care that would be provided to any other infant born at a similar gestational age. The bill would also require doctors to provide women with basic information about the abortion procedure, including possible risks and complications. Doctors would be required to obtain their patients' written informed consent prior to performing an abortion, and it would become mandatory for abortion facilities to post visible signage informing women of their right not to be compelled by anyone into having an abortion. PS 950 further sets basic health standards for abortion clinics. It requires abortion facilities to maintain written guidelines on procedures for the disinfection of medical equipment and management of biomedical waste. The bill would require abortionists and abortion facilities to be licensed and subject to annual inspection by the Department of Health. Abortion facilities would also need to be located only in buildings where emergency medical personnel can be guaranteed access to the patient, such as maintaining hallways and stairwells wide enough to fit a stretcher. Initially, an earlier version of PS 950 had proposed more ambitious restrictions, including a ban on abortion after 20 weeks, a mandatory 48-hour waiting period, and bans on sex-selective abortion and on abortion of a child diagnosed with a genetic disability. After Governor Rosselló threatened to veto the original bill last September, however, substantial changes were made to PS 950 to improve the bill's chances of success. Even with only minimal abortion restrictions left in the final version approved by the Legislative Assembly, the bill was still rejected by the governor. It remains to be seen whether lawmakers in the Puerto Rico Senate have the support to pass the bill over Governor Rosselló's veto. This is PRI Review from POP.org. We'll be right back. Do you want to win pro-life legislative and political battles? For years, PRI has been helping pro-life leaders on the ground around the world to win legislative and political battles in order to protect the lives of the unborn. And now we're asking for your help so we can continue this vital work. Let me tell you more. In a number of countries around the world, there are still pro-life laws on the books. But the Planned Parenthood abortion über alles Malthusians are out there to get rid of those laws. Nearly five years ago, the Pontifical Council on the Family asked PRI to be the main organization to help the pro-life movements around the world to be more effective. 
In response to the Vatican's request, we created our Pro-Life Victory Seminars and our Pro-Life Strategy Guide. The seminars are grueling, demanding 12 to 14-hour intense working sessions. Only the most proven and successful leaders are invited to speak. Only the best and the most committed activists are invited to attend. To date, we have conducted 60 such sessions in 18 countries. We have trained more than 1,700 people who are serious about protecting the unborn in their respective countries. They have won some victories, but I'm not going to tell you about those because I don't want to put a target on the back of those leaders. I'm not going to tell you the names of their countries either because I don't want to make it even harder for them to do their work. But here's a hint. Most, though not all, have Spanish as their native tongue. It's no secret that south of our border, pro-abortionists are zeroing in on the existing pro-life laws in that part of the world. I cannot tell you the battle stories, although there are many, without endangering the victories of the leaders. I must ask you to take my word that some battles in some countries could not have been won without the training and support received from PRI. What kind of training am I talking about? Everywhere in the world, defenders of life need everything. Strategic thinking skills, campaign skills, legislative skills, lobbying skills to protect their pro-life laws and to stop pro-death initiatives. Around the world, we found that the biggest thing lacking is know-how. By that, I mean political sophistication. Here in America, we've been fighting pro-life battles for almost 50 years, and while we haven't won definitively, we have learned a lot about how to fight, as well as how not to fight. One of the most important tools of our pro-life victory training is the manual that the trainees get to take home with them the Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles. Think of it as a field guide to activism. The guide is a compendium of know-how. It is 200 pages of distilled experience and wisdom with step-by-step -step instructions about how to advance our issue in a representative landscape. Here's a small sampling of the know-how delivered in these training sessions. How to raise money how to lobby legislators, how to write powerful pro-life advertising, how to effectively appear on TV and radio, how to enlist volunteers, how to get out the vote, and how to successfully debate pro-abortionists. All this and much, much more is covered in the training program and reinforced in the training guide. The first edition came out in 2012, but we are all out of them now. They have all been put in the hands of able pro-life leaders. So today we have had it revised and updated by two of the best and most successful activists in the Spanish-speaking world. Today the new PRI, Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles is ready to go to press. This is where you come in. Will you help us get it into the hands of the people who need it? It's in Spanish right now, and that's as it should be, because we distribute it throughout the Spanish-speaking world. The Vatican wants this field manual in every diocese in the world. Will you help me to fulfill that request? 
PRI has ordered 10,000 copies of the guide to be printed, enough for every student who will attend our training sessions for the next several years, along with all the actively pro-life bishops around the world. Just the printing alone will cost $50,000. The whole International Victory Training Program costs another $50,000, and that is in addition to the field guide. But right now, we want to get those guides printed. So I turn to you because I know you understand its value. The cost comes out to about $5 per book, which is not very much considering the impact it can have and the lives it can save. With your tax-deductible gift of $50, PRI can put this guide into the hands of 10 in-country pro-life leaders. With a gift of $100, we can make sure that 10 friendly bishops get a copy to guide their strategic thinking in the protection of life. No gift is too small. If you can only spare $5, please send it today. Unborn babies around the world will be safer because of your sacrifice today. Can we count on you to help PRI to continue to train and empower the pro-life movement around the world? On behalf of all those fighting to preserve pro-life laws around the world, thank you. Heartbeat bills are gaining momentum. This year, with a new and hopefully consistent conservative majority in the U.S. Supreme Court, several states have seized the opportunity to advance pro-life legislation aiming to overturn Roe v. Wade. One type of pro-life legislation in particular is increasingly gaining momentum on the state level, heartbeat bills that ban abortion from the moment an unborn child's heartbeat can be detected. Because heartbeat laws ban abortion prior to viability, a heartbeat ban could provide the basis for a case before the Supreme Court that could see Roe v. Wade overturned or severely limited. Currently, Supreme Court precedent under Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey prohibits states from banning abortion prior to viability. According to the Supreme Court's definition of the term, Viability is the point at which the unborn child has the ability to survive outside its mother's womb. However, heartbeat laws ban abortion as early as six weeks gestation, far earlier than the court's viability benchmark. As a result, heartbeat laws directly challenge Roe's viability standard. So far this year, heartbeat bills have been introduced in 15 states, Two states, Kentucky and Mississippi, have passed heartbeat bills into law, although a federal judge has temporarily blocked the Kentucky law from going into effect until a hearing can be held. The Georgia legislature has passed a heartbeat bill that Governor Brian Kemp is expected to sign. So far, heartbeat bills have also passed at least one house of the state legislatures in Missouri, Ohio, and Tennessee. Heartbeat bills have also been introduced in Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, South Carolina, Texas, and West Virginia. Several states have also introduced heartbeat legislation for the first time this year, including Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, and West Virginia. 
Already more heartbeat bills have been introduced this year than in any other year since the first heartbeat bill was proposed in the Ohio General Assembly back in 2011. A project page maintained by the Population Research Institute tracks the status and history of heartbeat legislation in every state where bills have been introduced. The Kentucky and Mississippi heartbeat laws passed this month would ban abortion from the moment an unborn child's heartbeat can be detected. The only exception would be in cases to save the life of the mother or to prevent a serious risk of the substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function of the pregnant woman. Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant signed the Mississippi Heartbeat Bill into law last month. And I quote, we think this is showing the profound respect and desire of Mississippians to protect the sanctity of that unborn life whenever possible, he said. Doctors who violate the new Mississippi heartbeat law would be liable to a $1,000 fine, up to six months in prison, and a suspension of their medical license. The Kentucky heartbeat law would make aborting an unborn child with a detectable heartbeat a Class D felony, punishable in that state with one to five years in prison. More heartbeat bills in other states are expected to be signed into law before the end of the year. In Georgia, a heartbeat bill called the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act has passed both houses of the state legislature. Last Friday, the Senate passed HB 481 with several amendments strengthening the bill's original language. The House is expected to vote on the amended version of the bill soon, and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has indicated strong support for the bill. Unlike the Kentucky and Mississippi laws, the Georgia heartbeat bill would allow abortion in cases of rape, incest, and when the unborn child is, and I quote, incompatible with sustaining life after birth, end quote. In Ohio, heartbeat bills had passed both houses of the state legislature in 2016 and again in 2018. But both bills were vetoed by then-Governor John Kasich, who argued that the pro-life measures were likely to be struck down by the courts. Ohio's current Governor Mike DeWine, however, has said that he will sign any heartbeat bill passed by the General Assembly. Ohio's 2019 heartbeat bill, SB 23, passed the Senate on March 13th, and now needs only to pass the House, where a similar heartbeat bill passed last year with a veto-proof majority. In Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee has said that he will also sign his state's heartbeat bill if it is sent to his desk. In Missouri, a heartbeat bill also passed the State House on February 27th, with a companion bill currently under consideration in the State Senate. Heartbeat bills in other states where pro-life lawmakers have majorities in the state legislature are also working their way through the legislative process. Last year, Iowa had also passed a heartbeat law. However, a county judge struck down the law earlier this year, declaring the heartbeat law invalid under the state's constitution. In 2013, Arkansas and North Dakota had passed heartbeat laws as well, but the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, bound by the U.S. Supreme Court's precedent in Roe and Casey, was ultimately forced to strike down both laws. In 2016, the Supreme Court refused to hear the Arkansas and North Dakota heartbeat law cases, leaving the 8th Circuit's decisions in place. 
Some pro-life supporters in the last have criticized heartbeat bills for being too weak, for failing to ban abortion outright. Promoters of heartbeat bills, on the other hand, have argued that heartbeat legislation is useful from a legal standpoint in getting the Supreme Court to overturn Rose and Casey's viability standard. U.S. Supreme Court watchers are also uncertain whether the Supreme Court would allow states to ban abortion completely, even with the two new conservative justices added to the bench. Just last month, Chief Justice John Roberts, who previously had been considered a reliable pro-life vote on the court, drew the ire of pro-lifers when he sided with the court's liberal wing to block temporarily a Louisiana law that would have required abortionists to maintain admitting privileges at a hospital within a 30-mile radius. In Casey, the court acknowledged that states have legitimate interests in protecting the life of the fetus throughout pregnancy. If states are completely prohibited from banning abortion prior to viability under all circumstances, this central holding of Roe, as the court in Casey called it, would have no significance. Moreover, the court in Casey conceded that the demarcation point of viability can change as developments in medical technology allow for infants to survive outside the womb at earlier gestational ages. But this is also a tacit admittance that the viability standard is inconsistent in its application over time. Allowing states to enforce heartbeat laws would be more in line with Casey's acknowledgement of the substantial state interest to protect the life of the unborn and would provide for a more consistent and certain marker than viability, as the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has reasoned. Additionally, the plurality in Casey claimed that there is no line other than viability which is more workable, but the presence or absence of a fetal heartbeat can be much more reliably, consistently, and clearly determined than whether or not an infant will survive outside the womb. Consequently, the moment a heartbeat can be detected is undoubtedly a more workable line than viability. The more heartbeat bills are passed into law, the more likely the Supreme Court will be forced to take a position on the constitutionality of these laws. And in doing so, the Supreme Court will likely have to dismantle its viability standard, a crucial step that would allow states to finally adopt significant abortion laws. This is PRI Review from POP.org. We'll be right back. Birthday? For most of us, the answer is close to home, and specifically in our own parishes. Here's why. Six years ago, when Timothy Cardinal Dolan was president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, he admitted that our bishops have had laryngitis on Blessed Pope Paul's beautiful encyclical. Laryngitis for 50 years! Unfortunately, that's still true for many bishops who are too tied up with the political agenda of their national bureaucracy in Washington. There, issues like global warming, socialized medicine, and federal contracts for the bishops' welfare agencies have dominated the agenda for years, crowding out pro-life efforts and leaving humane vitae an orphan. That doesn't mean that the lay faithful haven't been asking. We have, 
In fact, pleas to our shepherds have had some heartwarming results in recent months, with several bishops coming forward with strong public defenses of Humanae Vitae. But the real work has to come from the grassroots, and that means the laity, because our busy bishops can't do it alone. They need our support, our encouragement, and our prayers. After all, the pro-life movement started at the grassroots, and its strength has stayed there. Bishops are often supportive of pro-life groups in their dioceses, but few are focused on them. Most chancery staffs spend much more time on immigration, refugees, fundraising, and other programs that receive federal funding. Pro-life efforts receive no federal funding, so pro-lifers have to fend for ourselves. While our bishops have countless distractions, our parish priests know us and we know them. They offer our most reliable source of support and encouragement when it comes to celebrating Humane Vitae's birthday party. And a wise pastor has a good suggestion on how to make it work. It boils down to this. Instead of telling your pastor, Father, you ought to do something about this. Tell him, Father, a group of us would like to have a reading group in the parish to study Humane Vitae. We've got the texts, the commentaries, and all the materials. All we need is some space in the parish one night a week and an announcement in the bulletin to spread the word. Don't worry, we'll do all the work, but we'd love to have your support, and it would be great if you could join us whenever you can. And by the way, a further note from long pastoral experience. Don't ask Father on the way out of Mass. Write him a note and ask him for a few minutes of his time at his convenience. There you'll have his full attention, and he can write down what he remembers of your conversation, and that's impossible when 50 or 100 people are shaking his hand after every service. Writing that letter also gives you the opportunity to pad your pitch with some supporting evidence. In this case, not only the support from bishops, including your own, we hope, but especially referring to the world-class conference that the bishops sponsored in Washington at the Catholic University of America last April. It was thanks to the support from Catholic University stalwart President John Garvey that this conference came off without a hitch with the admirable support of The conference offered three days of top-notch speakers and presentations, and they're all online. Supporters of Humani Vitae can cite this national conference as their inspiration for activities throughout the country in the diocesan and parish levels. And here's some great news. Our new website devoted to Humane Vitae is now online. It's a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Here's how to find it. Go to your website browser and type in humanevitae.org. No spaces. And remember, the dot is a period. There you will find a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Just go to humanevitae.org to find not only the masterful history of contraception by Dr. Gonzalo Herranz in four languages, and by the way, that's the history of the promotion of contraception against church teaching and natural law for over a hundred years, but it also includes the latest news and links in a wide array of resources. We'll be updating the site continually with new reports, materials, and insights from all over the world. In no time, it will be your go-to site for Humane Vitae News. Remember, just go to 
humanevitaproject.org and enjoy. And please don't forget to support PRI so that we can keep this project worldwide in four languages going until everyone knows the truth about Humane Vitae. Transgender people are suffering and indulging their delusions will not help them. A special report from PRI President Stephen Mosier. Not long ago, Pope Francis stirred controversy in a discussion about so-called transsexuals. The occasion was a press conference where he told the story of meeting a person born a female, who even as a girl had felt herself to be a boy. As the Pope described it, he had undergone surgery and then married. Later, he had written to the Pope, who had agreed that he, with his wife, would visit him in the Vatican. He, these are the Pope's direct words, who was a she, but is a he, lui qu'era ma e lui, he who was a she, but is a he. Well, I found the Pope's statements regarding a biological impossibility, he becoming a she, troubling when he first uttered them in 2016. I found them even more so now, as the transsexual craze is reaching the level of a mass psychosis among the impressionable young. Even psychiatrists and counselors who should know better are being pressured into simply affirming life-changing decisions made by confused adolescents themselves in thrall to peer pressure. Life is life, and one must take things as they come, explained the Pope at the time. Everything except babies, apparently, who, as everyone knows, come into the world bearing distinctly male or female parts. Even if those parts are later surgically removed or altered, at the cellular level, every cell of every transsexual's body continues to proclaim its maleness, XY, or femaleness, XX. Bathing the body in artificial hormones may sprout beards and breasts, but it has no effect on this underlying biological truth. Perhaps I take biology a little too seriously, but then I take gravity seriously as well, and for the same reason. Those who ignore reality will sooner or later be punished by it. It was pastoral for the Pope to meet privately with the he who was a she, who clearly was in great need of spiritual counsel. But in affirming this transsexual's chosen sex at a press conference, the Pope appears to be signaling that all Catholics should be willing participants in the transgender delusion. But was he, and should we? The forces that insist we do are certainly growing apace. You can now be banned from Twitter for misgendering someone. In Great Britain, you will even be visited by the police on suspicion of having committed a hate crime. There are those in the U.S. and Canada who want to send you to jail for refusing to engage in the pretense that he is who she says he is. While the rest of us may be confused by gender shifters, those who actually shift genders may suffer real harm. For them, in truth, the cure may prove to be worse than the disease, much worse. As psychiatrist Christian Spayman has noticed, transsexuality is a cause of great suffering above all for the people in question, but also for their family members and especially for their children. Hormonal or surgical means cannot entirely remove this suffering, 
Studies show that transsexuals, even after sex assignment and sex reassignment surgery, have a higher than average rate of psychological disturbances and suicide attempts and an almost 20 times higher than average rate of suicide. Moreover, there are ever more cases of person requesting reversal surgery. This is perhaps not surprising. In all other cases where there has been a profound mismatch between the mental body image and the physical body, we treat the mind. Only in the case of transsexuality do we attempt to make the physical body conform to the mind's conception of what it should look like. This is surely backwards. Consider the disorder known as body integrity dysphoria, BID. Like gender dysphoria, sufferers experience a mismatch between the mental image of one's body and the actual physical reality. BID is frequently associated with an intense desire to become deaf or blind or for the amputation of a leg or arm. Brueger and Legenhager report that the person sometimes has a sense of sexual arousal connected with the desire for loss of a limb or a sense. The sexual parallel here with the current transgender craze is obvious. Some BID sufferers act out on their fantasies pretending they are amputees. Some announce that they intend to damage the offending limb so badly that surgeons will have to amputate it, although cases of actual self-amputation are, understandably, rare. I note here, without any attempt at humor, that if transgenders had to resort to self-amputation to, say, rid themselves of a penis and testicles, they might rethink their orientation. But in the current climate, it is no trouble for them to arrange for licensed medical professionals to do exactly this. The vast majority of physicians would never purport to treat a patient with BID by amputating the offending limb or by blinding his patient or by in any way catering to the patient's dysphoria. And yet, for those suffering from gender dysphoria, we now have much of the Western world's medical establishment in full cry to do just that. They are more than ready to cut off the penis and testicles of a young man who is suffering from the delusion that he is really a she. They are more than willing to surgically create an artificial penis, a prosthesis, for a young woman destroying her fertility in the process simply because she has somehow convinced herself that she is really a he. It is no surprise that those who have transitioned are much more likely to commit suicide. Imagine the disappointment of a young man who discovers that simply cutting off his boy parts and growing hormonally induced breasts leaves his disordered mental state, the actual source of his problem, untouched. His pain must be indescribable, made all the worse by all of the supposedly educated and experienced therapists, counselors, and physicians who accompanied him on his journey and affirmed his choice to embark upon his life-changing course. Rather than admit this, the sexual revolutionaries among us insist that the real source of the transsexual's problem is we. If only we accorded those proclaiming a new sexual identity, the social recognition they deserved, we are told, all of their problems would go away. This is nothing more than an attempt to shift blame for the unhappiness of those suffering from gender dysphoria onto society at large. The insistence upon threat of punishment 
that we never ever use the wrong pronoun is the nub of this effort. Some say that this he-who-is-a-she business is merely a harmless fantasy, that we should all simply be good sports and play along with. I disagree. Let us say such and such a person imagine herself to be a cat. Would we want to play along with Catwoman's fantasy on the grounds that it is not harmful? Any such fantasy is likely to collide with reality at some point, either in the realm of physical limitations. For instance, if she throws herself in the air, thinking that a cat always lands on its feet, she might do considerable harm to herself, or in the lack of social affirmation. Obviously, even if the Catwoman's therapists and friends play along with her fantasy, most of the people she encounters in ordinary life will not. Will this not be the source of continual internal conflict for her? It is no wonder that many transsexuals eventually come to see their lives as a cruel joke and choose to end them. The high suicide rate alone suggests that such transitions ought not to be encouraged. If any other drug, device, or medical procedure were known to cause this level of harm, it would certainly be proscribed. Those transsexuals who kill themselves are not in the final analysis acting alone. They are victims of assisted suicide with the assistance, in this case, being those who aided, abetted, and above all, affirmed their transition. You've been listening to PRI Review from POP.org. The Roundup of the News from the Population Research Institute. Thanks for listening. 